Well, last Sunday, we read about Jesus leaving his biological family outside while he pointed to his disciples and said, these are my mother and my brothers. Everyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus said that everyone who is rightly related to God the Father becomes part of the family of God. Those who are in the kingdom of heaven belong to Jesus' family. And then it occurred to us that we should maybe put pause on for a week and talk not only about what it means to be in the family of God uh, in the church all around the world, but what it means to be in the family of New Life Church. And so I hope not only to be clear about what it means to be part of Jesus' family, but also about what it means to be part of our family, the family at New Life Church. And so in order to think about that, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles, not to the book of Matthew, but to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is a small book near the end of your Bible. And uh, when you find it, go ahead and find chapter 3, and I'll begin reading in a moment in verse 14. We're going to pause and look at the Bible because to the degree that we regulate our lives by the Bible is the degree to which we will be a happy family. The first sentence of Leo Tolstoy's novel, Anna Karenina, is this, happy families are all alike. Every family, every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. All happy churches are the same way. All happy churches are in some measure alike in that they attempt to line up with the standards in the scripture which would make them to some degree or other all the same. Otherwise, Churches might think that they're free to do their own thing and do whatever they want, which would also lead to their unhappiness in their own way. And so we will attempt to see the Scripture, and my hope is that you can sort of piece together uh, the, the Scripture and your experience to realize that we're doing our best at New Life Church to conform to the way the Bible describes the church. And so let's read 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great, indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. 
Our life together as a church reflects the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, our life together as a church is born from the good news of Jesus Christ. And our family will be happy to the degree that we depend on the gospel, that we proclaim and protect the gospel, and then that we live together according to the gospel. And so in order to see this from this text, I'm going to go backwards from verse 16 back to verse 14, and hopefully that will be uh, simple enough to follow. But the reality is that the gospel of Jesus is the foundation of the church. We must center our lives and our church on the good news. To be a church or to be a happy church is to depend on the gospel of Jesus. Verse 16, look at it again. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. In order to be godly, in order to be um, spiritual in the way the Bible talks about it, we have to have this truth about Jesus central. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. What we believe is central to what we do. The content of our faith shapes the practice of our faith. If you are not clear on what you believe, you cannot be clear on what it is you are to do as a church. There are some who think that doctrine or teaching doesn't matter. The reality is it matters a great deal. You cannot be cavalier about God's revelation and expect to live in the church in a way that's healthy. There's no hope for godliness apart from a clear confession of Christ. And so he states here that confession. And so this is what we believe about Jesus, this mystery of godliness that he lists. This six-fold statement become the, the map, you might say, of Christ's earthly ministry and the continuing results of that ministry. Namely, he was manifested in the, in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. Those six things tell us the story of Jesus. Jesus, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, became flesh and dwelt among us. He was manifested in the flesh. When he died and rose again, he was vindicated by the Spirit. When he ascended, he was seen by angels. The church then proclaimed him to the nations. The nations believed on him throughout the world. And so you are here today. And he was taken up into glory. He now dwells at the right hand of God, making intercession for you day in and day out. It is this 
Jesus that we depend on, that we believe in, that gives life to the church. And there really is no other way to have a church, to be a church, without making Jesus central. So much so that in this book of 1 Timothy, Paul gives two more of the clearest expressions of the gospel in the entire scripture. Uh, if you turn back a couple of pages of 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, you'll see uh, him say this in a uh, really interesting way. He says, this saying, talking about the gospel, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe, to believe in him for eternal life. The king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners. That is the simple statement of the good news. That what we could not do for ourselves, Jesus did for us. That he might display to the church, to the world, to all of the heavenly host, his perfect patience. So that those of us who believe in him might have eternal life. Over and over and over, the scripture says the same thing, that Jesus is the one central person to the church. He is the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. To him be honor and glory forever and ever. He says then the gospel another time in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. We're going to look at some of the surrounding verses in a moment. But it, it, 1 Timothy 2 says, Who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth? For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. And so you see here that God desires people to come into his family so that uh, they might know him. But in order for them to come into his family, he had to send his only son to be that one mediator between a holy God and sinful humanity. He gave himself as a ransom for all. So that whatever punishment was due your sin, whatever penalty you deserved was taken by Christ so that you might be set free. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what gives rise to the church, what is the foundation of the church. It's what's the hope of the church. Even as I say, the church begins with the gospel. It rises out of the gospel. And it proclaims the gospel to the world. I want you to know that here at New Life Church, we 
Um, we believe that, and it's important enough to us that we do our best to get it in front of you every single week in one way or the other, or many ways, actually. One of the things that you probably don't recognize um, is that we try and build a gospel outline into every worship gathering. You may not have caught it because if you're like me, you were kind of slow getting in here and missed the first part of the service, which would give you a good hint. Um, but at the beginning of our worship gathering, we start with some sort of a call to worship. This call to worship reflects the goodness of God and creation. It is the beginning point of our faith that God is good and we rehearse His character as we were meant to enjoy it in creation. And then this um, outline moves to the second movement or the second piece, which we would call the fall. And you may have noticed then when somebody, Scott did it earlier, when he gets up to pray, he somehow talks about our sins, somehow talks about uh, our brokenness. All of this we attribute to sin, which came into the world when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And so that movement of the gospel is reflected in our service. And you might have thought, well, it's awkward. They get up here and pray about sin every week. We do that deliberately so that all of us not only enjoy the character of God, but we recognize our need for Him. Then the third part of the gospel and the third part of our service uh, speaks to the redemption of Jesus Christ. That's the part the message plays in the service and usually another song or two. But the idea is that we are broken and then we rejoice and we worship that Jesus has in fact come to give us new life, to show us his patience and to reconcile us to God. And then finally, uh, we close out the service with uh, a few songs about our ultimate hope that one day Christ will return and establish his reign in the new heaven and new earth, and we send you out with a word of hope and a benediction. And so I suppose since it's Halloween, I want you to recognize that we try and get the skeleton of the gospel into our service one way or another, so that even the structure of the service uh, reminds you that God made us for something, that our sin and our rebellion against Him uh, caused all kinds of trouble with that. So Christ had to, to come and rescue us, and one day we will ultimately have hope because of Christ. And so we build that in every week, and whether you know it or not, it's our intent that you get a little bit of the gospel, which means there are things we don't do in our worship services. There are, there are songs maybe we don't sing. There are other things that might not have a place in our service because we're trying to do that over and over because the gospel is so central to the church. And because the gospel is central to the church, it is then the church's role to believe it, to hold on to it, to hold it forth, and to proclaim it. That's what we see in the second part of verse 15. Verse 15. 
Second part of verse 15 says, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That tells us a couple of things. This household of God is the church of the living God. If Jesus is alive, as our confession says, then our household relationships will put him on display. The way we relate to one another reflects the teaching and the importance of Jesus in our relationships. If Jesus is alive, then the church, not a parachurch ministry, not Young Life, not the Billy Graham Association, not a seminary, not a mission organization, but the church is central in the program of God. The church itself is the instrument of what God wants to do in the world. I want that to sink into you for a moment, that the church is central to what God wants to do in the world. Because if, if you're like me, especially if you've had experience in churches, you can probably think of a hundred other ways, maybe a thousand other ways that would work better than a church. But it doesn't matter. Because the church is God's method. God himself has gone all in on the church. So much so that he gave his one and only son that there might be a church. And if God is all in on the church, the simple and obvious conclusion from that is that you can be all in on the church as well. This text says the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. What does it mean to be a pillar and buttress? I don't really use those words very often. They come from the world of architecture, and it has to do with a building a pillar supports and a buttress extends. And it means that the church protects and proclaims the gospel. The role of the church is to believe the truth and to, and to hold to the truth and to protect the truth and then to tell the truth. One commentator said the church is to be understood as that which exists to maintain and protect the truth because it is itself founded on the basis of that truth. The church is depicted as being entrusted with the task of supporting and caring and serving the truth. This is undoubtedly a point stressed in 1 Timothy in light of the threat brought to the church by the heresies. But the implications drawn from this church truth relationship 
in the present context have mainly to do with the conduct. That is, the church's relationship to the truth demands a certain kind of behavior from its members. Another way to say it is that the church is produced by the gospel, and then it protects and proclaims the gospel. Believing the gospel unites the people to Christ and consequently then to one another. That's how they become a church. The church comes from the gospel and then in turn proclaims the gospel to the world and invites the world in. Now again, when I talk about being united to Christ and then being united to one another at New Life Church, that looks like uh, our life groups. What happens at the church in, um, on Sunday mornings is only part of it. We want to have a large group representation of the church and then throughout the week, small group representations of the church. Because it's really hard to be a family with uh, a room full of people this size. I mean, imagine having all these people to Thanksgiving dinner. You would understand the problem, wouldn't you? But in a life group or in a small group, those are the people you can have dinner with. Those are the people when you are united to Christ and they are united to Christ, you can have this um, relationship like Jesus indicated there in that house as he was preaching in the book of Matthew. And so we structure our church without a ton of programs, but we structure it really simply for these relationships. And so how you live then in the church matters because it reflects the truth of the gospel. So we have the, the gospel there in verse 16. We have the church as the, the protector and proclaimer of the gospel. And then those of us who believe must conduct ourselves in a certain way. Because the church lives according to the gospel. Look at verse 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you might know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So this behaving in the household of God is what comes from believing the gospel. Your believing leads to your behaving. And as Jesus redefines his kingdom in terms of family, his brother and sister and mothers are those who do the will of God, then our relationship with Jesus relates us to one another and we become then the household of God. The expression of that household of God here is New Life Church. And so I've tried already to sprinkle in some of the ways that we apply these things at New Life Church, but how do we behave ourselves here? What is it that we do here that reflects some of the values that he wrote about? Paul wrote Timothy and said, I'm writing in case I'm late so that you might know how to behave yourselves. So how do we behave ourselves here at New Life Church in the household of God? 
Well, in order to answer that question, I want to do what he was doing there, which is to go back and to look at what he wrote. I write these things so that you might know. So if you go back and look down at your Bibles in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he wrote that so that we would know how to behave. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, says this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So notice that he says, it's chapter 2, but notice that he says, first of all, everything else is more or less introduction, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people. His interest is that the church prays, that we get used to being a church that prays. Notice, since we're almost on election day, what he says we should pray about. We should pray for everyone. Nobody is exempt from being prayed for by God's people. But especially, he says, for kings and those in high position. And how do you pray for them? Do you pray that your candidate will win? Do you pray that your side will get uh, elected? Or that this or that referendum will come to pass? He says, you pray so that we might lead peaceful and quiet life. You pray for your government for the sake of the church so that the church will be free to do what the church is to do, to lead this godly, dignified life in service of Christ so that the mission of the church and the evangelism of the church might go forward unhindered by government interference. And so he says, first of all, I want you to pray. Then if you skip down to verse 8, he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. You need to build in in every place a reminder, an opportunity to pray. And so we try and do that at New Life Church. You've already noticed that we've prayed a couple times in the service. When we gather together, prayer is important. If you want to be prayed for, become part of a life group. That's where, that's where practical things are prayed for, relationships are prayed for, people are prayed for over and over. And then, as a church, once a month, we just force ourselves, shall I say, with all kinds of enthusiasm, we force ourselves to designate the first Wednesday of every month as a day of prayer. Why? Because we're so great at praying? Because no, there's no other reason other than Jesus says, do it first of all. Make it a priority in the life of the church. So we're just going to raise the flag and say, hey, church, let's be a church that prays. First Wednesday of the month happens to be coming this Wednesday. 
The Kingdom Initiative will have a, a list of prayer requests. But you can pray for those things. You can pray for other things. You can pray, as it says here, in every place, when you're in your car, when you're getting out of bed, when you're going to bed, when you're at meals. Make it just part of your life. It's just a chance for us to, to raise the flag and remind ourselves that first of all, prayer is a priority. And so he says, first of all, pray. Prayer is not an optional part of the Christian life. It's not an optional part of church life. And so that's, again, why we build it into our service and why we build it into life groups and why we build it into our monthly rhythm as a church. Well, that's how, one of the ways we conduct ourselves in the household of God, according to chapter 2. According to chapter 3, if you look at chapter 3, one of the ways we conduct ourselves is by uh, choosing and um, supporting qualified leadership. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And what he's saying there is that there is an office in the church that is designated to oversee or to care for the church, to shepherd the church. And then he goes on for another eight verses and lists the qualifications of those people. They need to be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well. With all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall in the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, I read all that to you from chapter 3 because that's important. It's important that, first of all, those who lead the church, whether you call them overseers or elders or pastors, the, the Scripture kind of treats those terms synonymously. But the elder must be a person of godliness and integrity. The character in an elder matters because they will represent one whose character is spotless, namely Jesus. The second thing that you would notice, some from this verse, some from others, is that there needs to be more than one of them. There is a plurality of elders. Some churches structure it where there is one central pastor, bishop, whatever you want to call him. But I do believe the scripture provides a local church with a plurality of elders. And then third, as I mentioned a second ago, their role is to oversee or to shepherd the church. The pastor is not the shepherd, but one of the shepherds. It takes more than one person to do that overseeing, shepherding work. And it requires the character that I pointed out earlier. And that's one of the ways that we operate in the family of God. We, we have a our 
annual church budget and elections meeting where the church will recognize uh, elders for the next season as well as vote on uh, the budget. But that meeting is part of the way that we try and build this into our church. If you continue in chapter 3 to verse 8, you'll notice that there's another office called deacons. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Now, deacon's sort of a, a church word that uh, is a little bit unfortunate because it's a Greek word that was not translated into English. It just came straight over from deacon in Greek to deacon in English. And it means servant. It means someone who is a minister or who comes alongside to serve or encourage. And so, because it's an unusual word, our church, we, we use the terms ministry leader. That, is, that a deacon is someone who leads other people who serve. Or a servant who serves other servants. A ministry leader. And if you think about it, how you conduct yourself in the household of God... That is part of it, isn't it? In every family, there is a lot of service going on. And that's how the family operates. If you have someone in your family who puts their feet up in the living room while the rest of the family cleans up dinner, that might be a problem. If somebody who sits and watches TV while the rest of the family cleans the house, that might be a problem. This is one of those things that Families have to train their children to do. We don't naturally do it as part of our family, but clearing the table and picking up your room, those are, there are reasons that parents teach those to kids because that's the way the family functions. That's the way the church family functions as well. And so, serving and leading are part of the way we conduct ourselves in the family or household of God. Another aspect in chapter 4 is that we have worship that is centered on God's Word. Uh, look at 1 Timothy 4, 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. The words of faith and the doctrine matter. That's one of the reasons that the Bible is always open. One of the reasons that we have you, uh, have, that we read the Bible, that we have it in life groups, so that you rehash and retalk about what that text meant to me. 1 Timothy 4.13 says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of the Scripture, to encouragement, to teaching. And so whatever happens in a church service, one of the things that should happen is that the Word of God should be central. I hope you've noticed that already at New Life Church, and hopefully that's one of the reasons you're here. This Sunday is a little bit unusual in that we have one sermon from 1 Timothy in the middle of our study of the book of Matthew, but it's the exception that proves the rule. 
The rule at New Life Church is that we prefer to go straight through a book of the Bible. There are 66 books, and we want you to know and love and understand um, each one. And so it's important to us that we build that in from start to finish, that it's the argument of the Scripture that becomes normative in your life and the life of the church, not the persuasiveness of the preacher. I don't want you to come to church to hear my three best ideas. I want you to come to church to hear the word of the Lord. Similarly, we celebrate the Lord's Supper once a month as part of our word-centered worship. Scripture says, do this in remembrance of me. So routinely, and we, we try and do it on the first Sunday of every month so that it's not so frequent that we think it's just after service snack, but that it's not so infrequent that we forget about it, but enough that we remember that what makes us a church, what gives us hope, is that Jesus has died and rose again. It is a rhythm in this family where we intend to remind you of Jesus' death for you and his victorious resurrection. Then in chapters 5 and 6, we conduct ourselves in the household of God with benevolence and generosity. We live together in a way that cares for those who are disadvantaged or unfortunate. Look at 1 Timothy 5.3. Honor widows who are truly widows. Because when you honor those widows, then they in turn pray for the church, which is the first thing after all. In the church, and in there, there was no social security. There was no other way to care for widows, but these qualifications indicate that these are women who are destitute and have no family support, and so the church cares for them. If you were to modernize that into our context, you would probably say the church needs to do some benevolence. We need to have a way to help people with their physical and financial needs, and our church does have that. We have what we call a benevolence fund. And we use the benevolence fund for that reason, to help people with their uh, financial and physical needs. And I've been part of churches that talk about that all the time. I remember growing up and there were some very serious men at the back of the church with a hat. And you were to like put some money in as you walked out. And they were trying to do this to their credit. One of the reasons we don't talk about, in fact, the reason we don't talk about our benevolence fund is because you all have been so generous already that we have more money in our benevolence fund than we can use. And so uh, if it ever runs low, you can be confident that that you'll hear about it. But right now, we have plenty, and we're thankful um, that the Lord has given us what we need to care for the physical and financial needs as they come up. So if you know of somebody who has physical or financial needs, that's what this fund is for, and we want to help you help uh, the people that you love, and that's what uh, the Benevolence Fund is for. If you go to the next chapter, to chapter 6, you'll see that he deals with uh, generosity and with money in a more general way. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 and 7 
But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. In other words, how you relate to money is a statement about where your hope lies and where your faith lies. If you're anxious or in love with money, then there are problems in the way that you relate to Jesus. If you go on in 1 Timothy 6 to verse 17, it says, As for the rich in this present age. Now, if any of you were to do time travel and like be dropped in a first century church, you all would fit the description of the rich person, no matter how you feel about yourself. But in 6.17 it says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Your giving is a reflection of your faith. It is a signal that your hope is in God and not in your riches. It's interesting he says, so they may take hold on that which is truly life. When he, sa- he says that when he's talking to rich people. So that this perfect vacation is not truly life. A great retirement is not truly life. Wonderful possessions are not truly life. Truly life is setting aside treasure for heaven by your generosity. And so our church encourages this um, in several ways. We don't pass an offering plate like we used to. I think that that offering plate will rest in peace after COVID. Uh, Probably never to... uh, come back, but uh, hopefully it's easy enough to navigate online and find a place to give online. If you want to give and uh, bring uh, a check or cash to, to give, there's an offering box in the back behind those double doors, and you can put a connection card in there uh, as well. If you want to mail, check the church. That works too. But the reality is that the church prepares a budget that we all agree on and uh, affirm with our uh, vote. And we do that in our annual budget elections meeting, which is coming up on December 4th. Uh, And that's just part of the way we run the family, I suppose. Because if you think about it, your family, those are the people, the people in your family. Those are the people that have access to your money. Those are the people that share things in common And there's a sense in which our budget does that for our church family. And so as people who believe the gospel and who belong to Jesus Christ, we are related to him and so we're related to one another as a family. And our place in this grand family tree of Christianity is one that we are trying to order according to the scripture, some of those scriptures I read this morning. And I have to say that there are a lot of reasons that people like church or that church is popular. 
Sometimes a preacher is a, is a, brings great messages. He's a great speaker. Other times the music is really professional. But one of the things that many of those popular churches have in common is that people like them because they don't have to act like family there. They can blend in and be anonymous. And the reality is that Jesus didn't use anonymous language when he talked about his church. He used the language of family. And so it's our hope and our faith that New Life Church will be a family that is happy to the degree that we're the same as all the other families that are happy in the church, ordering our lives according to the Scriptures, where we depend on the Gospel, where we proclaim and protect the Gospel, and where we live according to the Gospel. May we believe and act as though we are willing to venture everything on the death and resurrection of Jesus. And may we be able to do that together as a family. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we are so thankful that of all the things we have, we have a risen Savior who has given himself as a ransom for sinners. Would you give us the grace that we need to believe in him. May you give us the grace that we need to love one another and to bear with one another and to reflect by our love for one another the glory of Jesus to the world. Would you help us in his name? Amen.